All right, all right. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Uh, who, who else loves November uh, as much as Jessica and I? Yeah, November's just the greatest. Like pumpkin spice lattes, pumpkin pie, pumpkin everything. Uh, any, any, any pecan pie people in the house? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Uh, my wife introduced me to sweet potato pie because she's from the South. And that's, that's just a game changer. So uh, the fact that God would create a potato that's sweet is what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm just kidding. Uh, so excited to see everyone in the house today. Uh, really excited to kick off a brand new sermon series we'll get to in a minute. But if this is your first time joining us, welcome. Uh, we're so glad that you're visiting with us. If you're joining us online, we love you. Thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. So we're going to kick off a brand new two-week sermon series called A Generous Life, subheading The Beauty in Giving. And I'm really, really excited about this because when we think about generosity— When we think about giving, especially in a church context, we don't really consider it a beautiful thing sometimes, if we're honest. Uh, sometimes we consider it like a laborious thing. So maybe you grew up in a, in a background where like uh, maybe promises, uh, giving to a church and the church over promising that you would be blessed and highly favored by God didn't really work out for you. Uh, maybe you have an experience where uh, you just kind of scroll through TV at 3 a.m. in the morning and see a random guy selling a rock from Israel saying your life will be great if you own this rock. It seems like giving or generosity in a church context can go a thousand different directions. But one thing that's been missed is that giving is actually a beautiful act of worship. That actually giving is one of the ways that we worship God through our money. And one of the reasons why we don't view giving as beautiful is because maybe of the misuse and abuse of money. But praise God, the scriptures offer a different vision for generosity. The scriptures actually offer a vision for generosity where you give of yourself and of your money and instead of feeling like you're being robbed of something, you actually receive life. The scriptures offer a vision of giving and generosity that is not life-taking or life-threatening, but life-giving. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to examine two parts in scripture where Jesus says this statement, you cannot serve God, Uh, you can't serve God and money. You'll be devoted to one or the other, but you cannot serve both. And the first place that we see this is in Matthew chapter 6. And the second place that we see this is in Luke chapter 16. Jesus giving this amazing statement. You can't serve God and money, uh, both under two totally different circumstances. And so this week, we're going to look at Luke chapter 16. And next week, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 15. I want to invite you to stand with me. Uh, We do this to honor the reading of God. God's word. Uh, If you're joining us online, I invite you to stand with me wherever you find yourself and let's honor the reading of God's word together. Luke chapter 16, verse 10. It says this, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. We can just stop there. Like That's a Jesus rebuke coming straight out of the gate. These aren't my words. These are his. So if you're already mad, don't be mad at me. I'm just the messenger. He says in verse 11, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to uh, the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? 
Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he, will be, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said, you, who are, the, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, you may be seated. Uh, with the remaining time we, we have together, I have this, this, this big idea that in the form of three statements. Uh, we give as an act of worship for God the Father. Two, we give to fuel the mission of God the Son. And three, we give by the power of God the Spirit. We give as an act of worship for God the Father. We give to fuel the mission of God the Son. And we give by the power of God, the Spirit. However, there are three barriers that we are going to unpack that we will see in our text that aim at tainting the beauty in generosity and that keep us from being a generous people. The first is disordered worship. The second is misaligned mission. And the third is false power. If you're taking notes, disordered worship, misaligned mission, and false power. Let's pray and ask God to prepare our hearts to receive this word. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful uh, that you are the giver of all good things. Um, And Lord, I thank you for the gift of the church. I thank you for this great assembly of the saints. Uh, Lord, as we gather to worship you in song and in community and in prayer and giving and uh, in, in obedience to this word, I pray that you would fill us up with your power and presence. I pray that you would help us to put this word into practice. I ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts, that our hearts would be good soil to receive this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So point one, the the first barrier that keeps us from being a generous people is disordered worship. Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So our mission here at the Springs Church is to make disciples, uh, to become followers of Jesus who are being transformed by the gospel for the worship of God the Father, the mission of God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit. So we are here today in this very moment, to grow as disciples, to be formed by the word of God, to be formed by community, to be formed by worship. And as we gather, uh, God makes us more and more like him. We are here to grow. Contrary to popular relief, you are not gathered here to check off a religious item on your to-do list. Rather, we are here to grow as followers of Jesus. Uh, But one of the temptations that we face in our spiritual lives is that we think That following Jesus means following him with the spiritual parts of our lives. That when it comes to following Jesus, that means that I get my prayer life right, I get my Bible life right, I get my church life right, I get all those things that sound spiritual in order, and that's what it means to follow Jesus. We only follow Jesus with the religious stuff. Uh, prayer, reading, growing in our faith, and everything else that doesn't seem spiritual or doesn't seem religious, we take on this attitude that that's on me. That all that stuff belongs to God, but everything else that doesn't sound religious and doesn't sound spiritual, that is on me to work out. My work, my career, my dreams, especially my money, that's on me. We only follow Jesus so far before we say, I got it from here. 
And this especially speaks to the way we follow Jesus with our money. You see, the call to be a follower of Jesus is holistic. It means giving him the whole of our lives, every single area and aspect, and submitting to him as we are conformed to his image in every area of life. From our work, to our sexuality, to our finances, every single area of our life that is touched by our breaths and touched by our hands belongs to God and needs to be submitted to his lordship so that we can live and become all that he's called us to be. It's not just the prayer. It's not just the Bible. It's just not just making an effort to show up to church, but submitting every single area of our life to his lordship including our money. And there's a false gospel that, that, that says uh, that I'll give God my spiritual life, but all the non-spiritual things, those physical and earthly things, those belong to me. Those are under my control. What I do with my time is on me. Where I choose to work, that's on me. Who I choose to date and be in a relationship with, that's on me. And how I make my money and what I do with my money is on me. And Jesus knew that one of the greatest temptations we would face is to separate money from our spiritual lives. And for that reason alone, Jesus talked about money a lot. Um, Upwards of 30% of his teachings are about money. And Jesus talked about money more than he did about hell and heaven and the kingdom of God. He talked more about money uh, than marriage and sexual ethics. He talked more about money than all of his other subjects combined because Jesus knew that the primary idol that would compete for our affection and compete for our heart and compete for our attention is money. Why? Because money would be the tool that you would use to build a life for you that you think would ultimately satisfy and fulfill you. Because money is that one idol that can easily captivate our hearts and have us living for more money instead of living for God. And instead of worshiping God, we find ourselves worshiping money because money becomes the tool, becomes the resource that we use to attain the life we always wanted. A life of security, a life of satisfaction, a life where money magically eliminates all the worries that lack of money is producing. And Jesus knew that money would be the chief competitor for our heart. And because money promises a life that God has already made available for us in Christ Jesus, Jesus had a lot to say about money. Jesus says that what we do with our money, how we handle our money, will either advance the kingdom of God or advance the kingdom of darkness. Jesus said more about money than any other subject because money has the ability to reveal a true person's nature. We're talking about money a lot. Not because I want your money or because we need your money, but because Jesus wants your heart and he wants to dethrone the one idol that can easily captivate you and keep you from living for him. This has nothing to do with building an empire or collecting uh, an offering so that we can purchase land here and do this and that. If God calls us to do that, we'll do that. This has everything to do with your heart and Jesus setting us free from the one idol that he knows easily captivates us, keeps us up at night, and occupies our thoughts.
How we handle money and what we do with it does not lie. It is a very clear statement to God of what we truly value. You've heard this said before. Show me your budget. Show me your bank statements. And I can show you what you value and who you worship. What would your bank statements reveal about the priorities in your life? What would your budget say who or what you worship? I am ashamed to say that I have bowed down to the idol of overpriced coffee way too much this year. And I'm like, Morgan, that that can't be right. There's a glitch there. Uh, I did not spend uh, that much money on coffee last month alone. It was was me and God time. It was me and the Lord reading our Bible at Summer Moon. Um, Our money shows us what we value. Our, our money is always aimed at places where we find fulfillment and satisfaction. It's always aimed at the things that captivate our hearts, whether it be books, whether it be fashion, whether it be food. What we do with our money truly reveals what we adore and what we love with our life. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When we live for money, what we are saying is that money is our greatest good. And you may be in this room and you're saying, no, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I've been following him for a while now. Me and him have an awesome devotional life, and this may be true, but if you find yourself thinking more about money and carrying on conversations in your mind about how more money would be better for you right now, if you spend more time entertaining those thoughts than conversing with the Lord and carrying on conversations with him, you've made money a functional idol. Because it is getting all the attention and thoughtfulness that God deserves. We tend to shy away from this because money has been misused or abused. It's been misused uh, to selfishly meet our own needs and neglect the needs of others. Uh, We use it to serve ourselves. Or it has been abused when it's been promised to be used for a certain thing and those promises go unmet. And the misuse and abuse of money reveals something incredibly significant. Hear me, church. Our misuse and abuse of money is first and foremost a heart issue. And the greatest misuse and abuse of money is that when we think that money will solve all of our problems, that all of our problems and all of our insecurities and all of our doubts have a price tag. And if we have enough money, we can buy ourselves into a problem-free life. This is a lie from the enemy that is there to keep us in further bondage, to pursue a resource that is designed to enslave us, not set us free. When we adopt this worldview, money becomes the false god we chase to satisfy and fulfill us. And, th- and what will happen is disordered worship will lead to disordered living. Disordered worship will lead to disordered living. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the Pharisees who were listening to this, Jesus said, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and ridiculed him. Why? Because they were not lovers of God. They themselves had a worship disorder. They were worshiping themselves. They were more concerned with living for themselves and upholding their own religious standards. And they would use money to satisfy their own selfish desires at the expense of the poor. They heard Jesus teaching on money. 
They heard a teaching that was completely upside down and radical. Where true life is found in serving God and meeting the needs of others. And they ridiculed him. They heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. Uh, But what exactly did they hear? Uh, Let's look at the first part of chapter 16 as we unpack point two. Misaligned mission. Uh, Jesus' statement on loving God or money comes immediately after sharing a story about a manager and a rich man that has been called the problem parable. Uh, And so we're going to take a stab at it this morning and pray that that God is able to uh, bring some clarity to it. So have grace with me. Uh, So after reading this story, you'll see why it's called the problem parable. So we're going to look at verse 1. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read it first, and then we're going to unpack some key details. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called them and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. Verse 4, I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? All right. He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's just kind of knock it down a little bit. Take your bill, sit down, and write 50. All right, this is kind of cool. Uh, then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. Okay, here's what we're going to do. It says you owe a hundred. Take your bill and write 80. You now owe 80. The master, this is where, this is where it gets problematic here. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What? For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Uh, There is a a lot happening here and a lot going on, so we're going to go back to verse 1 and and try to unpack it. So he said to his disciples, there was a rich man uh, who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. In this first century context, uh, these, uh, the, the rich man would have been someone who owned a great estate and business. And so it was very common to employ these servants that were called managers or stewards, and it was their sole responsibility to oversee the owner or the rich man's entire estate, and that included all of their finances. Uh, the sole job was to run their owner's estates and handle all the day-to-day finances, including uh, uh, all of their business transactions. Uh, they were called stewards because they were called to oversee possessions and financial accounts that did not belong to them. Remember that. So their mission was to steward what belonged to the owner, a.k.a. their boss. This man's mission was to steward what belonged to his boss. However, his mission got misaligned. The manager forgot that he was a steward, and he got careless and reckless with managing the owner's accounts. It says he was wasting his possessions. His mission was misaligned. He was wasting possessions instead of stewarding them. And we all face this temptation in our life. What Jesus is trying to remind us is that our time on earth is borrowed. Uh, 
That actually we don't own our own lives. Rather, God owns everything. He has created us and formed us, and we were created by God and for his good purposes. So our position is not one of owners. We are simply stewards, stewarding all that God has entrusted us. And yet we all face a temptation to believe that what we have is ours. And instead of stewarding it for a higher purpose, we begin to get careless with all that God's blessed us with. In verse 2, he called them and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. In verse 3, fear kicks in, worry kicks in. We've all had this moment in our lives. What am I going to do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to uh, to beg. Verse 4, I have decided what to do. He gets clever. He starts thinking to himself, Surely there is a way where I can still prosper and come out on top. Uh, He says, When I am removed, uh, he says, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. His livelihood is about to be taken away from him. Fear sets in and he begins to scheme and he has an aha moment. The light bulb goes off in his mind and this is what he says in verse five. He begins to summon all of the master's debtors one by one and he said to the first one, how much do you owe my master? While still employed under his master, he had all legal authority to run financial transactions and rearrange the books if he so chose to do. Uh, and so he, uh, one by one, he lines them up. He says, how much do you owe me? And one man says, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Some have commentated that a hundred measures of oil is like three years worth of salary. So to get that cut down, uh, that, that's a big debt that was just last. And as a steward for his master, he had the legal authority to conduct this financial transaction in the owner's name. So he reasons to himself, let me cut some debts from his clients so then when my master lets me go, maybe they can receive me into their homes and I can work for them. Uh, How would you like if a high-ranking official came to your house and said, hey, we're just going to cut this mortgage in half? I know know it's a 30-year loan, but let's do 15. How does that sound? Or if somebody came and said, student loans, what student loans? You're good to go. Or someone said, hey, a couple years off your car note, don't even worry about it. Of course you would receive that person with joy. Say less, come live here, I don't care. Uh, Take a room, it might as well belong to you. So this is what he's reasoning. Maybe I can cut down their debts low enough that I can find favor in their eyes so then when my master lets me go, they remember this act of generosity and I can find refuge in their home. And he said to another, how much do you owe me? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, okay, take your bill and write 80. And this next verse that we're about to read is the reason why it's called the problematic parable. I read through five different commentaries this week on this one verse alone, and each one of them, uh, ranging in 10, 20, 40 years apart from each other, said, this is the most difficult parable to interpret. And I said, why, God? Why do we got to do it this week? One of the most difficult parables to interpret, and Jesus really throws us off in verse 8, so let's read it together. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What is happening here? This manager, this steward is clearly acting unethically. He is cooking the books. This is a clear example of fraud and dishonesty. And yet this story that Jesus is making up on the spot, he says the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. 
Collins Dictionary, I like this definition. A shrewd person is able to understand and judge a situation quickly and use uh, and to use this understanding for their own advantage. A shrewd person is able to understand and judge a situation quickly and use this understanding to their own advantage. Uh, the characteristics of being shrewd is, is clever and savvy and be, being able to strategically form a plan for your own gain. And so why was this action taken by the steward considered so savvy and so clever? Good question. Commentators have pointed out that this action actually puts the rich man in a very, very difficult position. Not because he is losing money, but because his reputation is at stake now. This rich man has an opportunity to gain a reputation as a generous man. That his steward is cutting debts and letting debts go. What a generous man this rich man is. And if he went back to his clients and said, hey, my steward was acting out of line. Actually, you still owe me all that money. It would be terrible for his business and terrible for his reputation. And the dishonest manager knew that. In fact, the rich man has directly benefited from this steward's action because now the rich man has the potential to gain a positive reputation as a generous person. Knowing that he has been put in a, in a bind, that he has been outwitted and outsmarted, he applauds him. It's kind of like that moment in, in, a, in a TV show where, where like a, a heist is being pulled off and, and, and the person that you're pulling the heist off against you realizes what you did and they're like, man, good job. That was well done. I love heist movies, so I'm, I'm able to replay like three of those in my mind right now, like Ocean's Eleven. Um, this is what's happening. He applauds him. Wow, you, you got me. He applauds him not for his dishonesty, not for his unethical behavior, but for being so determined to seek his own good and take action during a time of crisis. He is commended for his shrewdness, not for his dishonesty. He is commended for his ability to be resolute and take action for his own well being. New Testament scholar Leon Morris says, it is the astuteness of the steward which is commended not his commercial practices. There is a world of difference between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. There is a world of difference between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly. Yes, he was dishonest, but props to you because you did what had to be done so that you could secure for yourself a future versus I applaud the clever steward for his dishonesty. Props to you for being dishonest and unethical. There is a world of difference between those two. Jesus is not commending dishonesty. He is commending this man's determined behavior to forge for himself a future in a time of crisis. This shrewdness, this resolute, determined behavior is purposefully being applauded to drive home the point that Jesus is making in verse 8 and 9. The sons of this world, the, the, the people who are not followers of Jesus, who have no regard for God, for God, they are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. He is commended for his ability to be resolute and take action for his own well-being. But Jesus isn't asking us to live that type of self-centered life. He flips it. He says, now use your wealth to make friends. 
Use your wealth in such a way to make friends because you're using it to bless people's needs and serve them. Use your wealth not to serve yourself, but to serve others. And what Jesus is saying is how much better would this world be if we were that determined and that resolute to use our money to meet the needs of others, not to use our money for selfish needs, but to use our money to meet the needs of others and advance the kingdom of God. How much different will the world be, church? If we were that determined and that resolute to say, this is not my own, I'm going to use it to serve God and bless others. Jesus is saying, as followers of him, this is the attitude and this is the mindset that we should adopt. He's saying that these worldly-minded people who aren't following Jesus and not thinking about God are doing a much, much better job at looking ahead into the future and taking resolute action to secure a future for themselves that will ultimately perish. How much more should the children of God who knows that this place is temporary and that our eternity is forever with God? What Jesus is saying is that the sons of light The children of God are to use money, not just for worldly purposes, but for spiritual purpose. Just like the dishonest manager was wise and decisive and ready to serve himself, we should be even more resolute and ready to worship God who meets all of our needs, who provides generously, who has never let us go hungry and serve others with the money that he's allowed us to steward. Our goal as disciples of Jesus is not to accumulate money and possessions. Our goal as disciples of Jesus is not to accumulate wealth for our own sake, but to accumulate money, possessions, and wealth for the kingdom's sake and to serve the needs and desires and to serve the needs of others and live in such a way where we worship God through our money. And in the kingdom of God, economics are flipped completely upside down. I don't even know if you can say they're flipped. I don't even know how they work. Jesus says it's better to give to receive. He says it's better to give all of of yourself away. And and there's this weird paradox where you do that and it's actually life-giving. That it's better to give and to be generous in such a way where you show to the world that my bank account and that my provider is not my job or not what I can do with my life, but it ultimately comes through God and that he has met and provides for every single one of our needs. Jesus teaches us that it's better to give than to receive that there's actually a way to practice generosity that's, not, that's life-giving and not life-threatening. And Jesus is reminding us that we are all stewards, church. We are not owners. And when we view ourselves as owners, hear me, the mission always gets misaligned. In God's kingdom, uh, the, the mission, uh, if, we, if we get the mission misaligned, uh, the mission and purpose for money is to be used for our own purposes and selfish desires. But in in God's kingdom, money is a tool that he uses to meet our needs because God will provide, but he also gives generously so that he can move money through us to bless others and to serve others and to advance his kingdom with him. The reason we are stewards is because the scriptures make it very clear that God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. 
We are created by God and for his purposes. And this is incredibly liberating. Why? Because it removes the pressure of sustaining yourself. It removes the pressure of trying to create a future for yourself with money that you, will believe, that you believe will ultimately satisfy and fulfill you. Why? Because God owns everything. He owns you and me. And as we've said, he owns you and he treasures you. Hear me, church. The Lord treasures you. You are his treasured possession. And that which he treasures, he cares for and he provides for. And that which is on loan by God, that he has graciously gifted us, those good things are for us to steward, not hoard or hold on to. When we forget this, misaligned mission leads to misaligned living. Instead of living for God and using our money for God, we will live for ourselves and money will be the tool that will further enslave us and not set us free. And this brings us to our last barrier, false power. The manager thought that he could secure for himself a safe and secure future using his own power. He thought he could find freedom by using money in such a way that he would secure for himself a future. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking this away from me? This has clearly become an idol in his life because he, he thinks and concludes to himself that his life is over because now this has been taken away. If you're having trouble identifying idols in your life, ask yourself this question. What makes you ask, what shall I do now when something is removed or taken away from you? What shall I do now? This relationship is over. What shall I do now? I failed this class. What shall I do now? Nothing is working out at work. And we've placed all of, uh, and what we've done is we've made those things, the functional idol that we build our lives upon, thinking that it will ultimately satisfy and fulfill us and give us meaning. This manager has found his identity in working for a rich man, and he says, now that this is taken away from me, what do I do? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. He concluded that if his job is taken away, it would be the end of him. He's too weak to dig, and he's not strong enough to work all of his security. All of his identity, all of his power was connected to something that could be taken away from him in a moment. So when the job goes, there goes his security, there goes his life, there goes his power. You see, true power, hear me church, is not found in owning something, it is found in belonging to someone. True power is not found in owning something, it is found in belonging to someone. True power is not found in owning stuff and accumulating a lot of money and having the right job title and the right career choice and being at the right stage of life so you can do whatever you want. True power is found in belonging to God. The power that we believe more money will give us, God has already freely provided in a relationship with him that costs you nothing. True power is not found in owning something. It is found in belonging to someone, belonging to God. And here's the good news of the kingdom of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from the power that sin has over our lives to keep us enslaved to idols. 
And it brings freedom that is not achieved or earned or bought, but is freely given so that when we transfer our trust and life to King Jesus, we can experience true power, true life, true satisfaction, true fulfillment that is not found in accumulating wealth and buying and purchasing and making money, but receiving life with Jesus. The good news of the kingdom of God, church, is that Jesus has come to dethrone the idols in our hearts that rob us of life. And, has, and he has laid down his life on the cross so that we can truly come alive. The good news of the kingdom of God is that the, genero- the generosity of God the Father that s- sets us free from false hope and false joy has been provided in Christ Jesus. Jesus comes to set us free from this endless pursuit of money that we think will momentarily satisfy us and that promises a lifetime of fulfillment, but never fulfills its end of the deal. This is how generous God the Father is. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is a generous father who has not withheld anything. He did not withhold his own son that was laid on a cross and died for our sins so that we can come alive in him and experience freedom from the power that sin has over our lives to enslave us. Eternal life, heavenly life, is not found in serving and living for money. It is found in living for God and with God. We give for worship. We give as a bold statement to say, all that I have has been given to me by God. Therefore, I want to worship him with it. We give for mission to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom of God, to fuel his mission in redeeming and renewing a broken world and seeing it come alive in Christ Jesus. And hear me, church, we give by his power working through us. We give not from the flesh's power working within us. Why? Because we wouldn't do it. It's difficult. Because our flesh opposes it. Our, our, our nature, apart from the spirit of God working in us, leads not towards generosity, it leans towards greed. And if it does lean towards generosity, it's for selfish measures. It's always transactional. What can I get out of this? If I give this much, how much can I be deducted on my tax statement? Or what do you have to offer me? No, the gospel frees us to give selflessly, asking nothing in return. Why? Because everything that we could ever long for or want has been provided for us in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we're free to give without obligation. This passage reminds us that one of the ways we worship God with our money is by being good stewards of the money that he has blessed us with and using it to bless and serve others. And church, I'm getting excited because right now we're going to take a moment to put this into practice this morning. Right now, we are not going to wait until tomorrow or another day to put this word into practice. Right now, we're going to practice being good stewards of God's money and serving others with it. We're going to put this into practice right now. One of our core values is called the city. Uh, We value the city because 
the gospel calls us to seek the welfare of it. Through the gospel, we can pursue the work of renewal in the communities we reside in. And as a church, we aim to see God's kingdom come in San Marcos and all over Hayes County on earth as it is in heaven. We love the city and we want to bless it and make a collective difference. And my hope and vision is that this would be the type of church that has such an impact on the city that if we were to disappear tomorrow, our city would feel its absence. That if we were to be gone tomorrow, there would be people and organizations that would feel our absence. Why? Because this would be the church. We would be the people that would be the catalyst for transformation in our city. And we would be the people that would carry the work of renewal to the most broken and barren parts of our communities so that the lost can come alive in Christ Jesus. And because of this, we're kicking off a new annual tradition in our church we're simply calling a big give. Where we take up a big offering and give it all away to a cause in our city or county that is doing good work to serve others and meet the needs of the city. We value and love the city. We want to bless it and we want to make a collective difference. And so to do that, we are going to take an offering to bless the Hayes County Food Bank. They have no idea that we're doing this. Uh, They have no idea that this is happening right now. Our goal is to raise as much money as we can and give it all away to this amazing organization right here in our city that that is working to fight food insecurity and provide meals and food to those in our county. So how does this work and what is our goal? Uh, with Thanksgiving right around the corner. Uh, The Hayes County Food Bank is kicking off their 15th annual Thanksgiving program called Turkeys Tackling Hunger. It's amazing. Uh, Before Thanksgiving, they give out these meal boxes to families in need, and it includes one 11 to 14 pound uncooked turkey, fresh carrots, potatoes, and onions, and a generous assortment of dried goods, stuffing mix, instant potatoes, green beans, corn, cranberry sauce, pumpkin filling, gravy, milk, rice, cream of mushroom soup, cream of chicken soup, and all of God's people said yes and amen. Let's go. Giving it away completely free. Uh, These holiday meal boxes cost the recipients absolutely nothing. But there is a cost for them to be prepared. Uh, The Hayes County Food Bank says that one $30 donation covers the cost to prepare one holiday meal box for a family in need. One $30 single donation covers the cost to prepare all of that food that I just read to bless one family in need so that they can enjoy a sacred meal together during Thanksgiving. Church, uh, we have set a goal to bless at least 60 families with a Thanksgiving meal box. If you're good with math, that means that we're going to give a one-time donation of $1,800 to the Hayes County Food Bank, and we're going to drop off this check tomorrow. Uh, This means that if every individual in this room right now and every individual watching online gave $30, we would would easily meet this goal and then some. 
Uh, some of you may be able to give more than $30, $60, $120, $1,000. Let's do it. Let's go above and beyond in blessing our community. You may not be able to give $30. Maybe you can only give $5 or $10. But if we come together and collectively bring it before the Lord, I believe we will be able to meet this goal and have a collective impact for the city. If every individual in this room gave a one-time donation, hear me church, one time, $30, we could easily raise our $1,800 goal to provide Thanksgiving meal boxes for 60 families in our county. One $30 donation. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, $30, that seems very tight. You may be thinking, I'm stretched. I'm barely making it. Hear me church. Hear me loud and clear. I want us to practice wisdom with God's money, but consider this. Right now, we have a wonderful opportunity to practice the type of giving that the New Testament calls us to. Sacrificial giving, not convenient giving. The New Testament calls us to practice sacrificial giving. It calls us, it doesn't call us to examine our budget and then give accordingly and then give conveniently. He calls us to give sacrificially, to give from a place that make our hearts momentarily uncomfortable because we remind our flesh that we rely not on ourselves to meet our needs, but on the heavenly father. We give sacrificially to remind ourselves that there is a heavenly father who is rich in love and cares for his children and will make sure every need gets met even when we give away his money that he has given us to steward, to bless and serve others. Consider this moment, a moment to practice giving from a place of sacrifice and not convenience. And because this is about sacrifice and being resolute and being determined and taking quick action to bless others, we're going to raise it all today. And we're going to close this fund tomorrow morning. Christians love to say stuff like, I need to pray about it so they can get out of it. Listen, pray right now, and I believe God will give you the power to give sacrificially and not conveniently. Praise God that he doesn't take forever to answer us. I believe God was going to give us the power to be a blessing to this city and we want to raise it all in one day, two day. Every single dollar that is raised is going to the Hayes County Food Bank. Not a single penny is staying at the springs. This money is simply going through the springs so that we can make a collective difference in our city and show our city, hear me church, that there is a people at 421 Springtown Way called the Springs that actually want to be the church and not just play church. They actually want to be the church and not simply talk about loving the community, but we're going to do it. Now you may have said to yourself, I've already gave today. Good news, let's give again. You may have said, I've already given to this organization. Wonderful. Let's bless them even more. You may, already, you may say, I give to other groups. Great. So do I. This is about going beyond ourselves so that we can be a blessing to our city and to our county. 
Let's do this together. So how do we give? Uh, there's three ways to give. One, if you scan this QR code, you, you can pull out your phone. You have permission to pull out your phone. Let's do it. You two online. And if you zoom in on this QR code, it'll take you straight to a designated link uh, that ha- already has Hayes County Food Bank inputted in it. And you can click give one time, $30, $40, $3, whatever it is that is sacrificial for you. And let's bless 60 families in our community. Uh, if that's not working for you, you can text Springs TX to 77. 77- 977 and you'll receive a giving link or if it's easier for you to go to the springstx.org slash giving you can select uh, you can be redirected to our giving page and select Hayes County Food Bank and church let's bless our city now here's what we're going to do we're going to do something a little bit different Uh, we're about to transition into communion but our last moment of worship we're going to take an opportunity to worship God through giving So after you receive communion, I encourage you, go ahead and pull this link up. And during this next song, if you need to talk it over with your spouse and say, how much do you want to give? Take a moment to do that. If your spouse isn't here, give on their behalf. If there's a friend who's in kids church who's serving, they don't know about this, let's go extra generous and give on their behalf and they can reimburse you later. But during this last song of worship, take a moment to posture yourself and let's, let's, let's practice worshiping God through our money because it all belongs to him. So let's let it move through us to bless others in our city. Uh, so as we transition to a time in communion, let's invite the worship team back up. Uh, we celebrate the God who so loved the world that he gave. And as we empty ourselves, let us ask that he fill us with his power so that we can give. After you receive communion, I encourage you uh, to take a moment and, and worship God through giving and ask him to give you the power to be a generous disciple who uses what he has blessed us with to advance his kingdom and serve the needs of others. So before we read our confession, once again, let's put that slide, here it is. Once, before we read our confession, go ahead and take a moment to, to scan this QR code to get this link. So after you receive communion, you, we can all collectively worship God through our act of generosity. Um, at any time uh, during this next song, I invite you to come up and, and, and receive communion. As we said earlier, we do this to celebrate the generosity of God the Father who has freely given his life so that we can come alive in him, who has shed his blood that would uh, conquer the power of sin and, and the enemy and set us free from ourselves so that we can come alive in him and whose body was broken so that we can be renewed and restored and become a people that live not for our own selfish desires, but for live for the glory of God and his great plans and purposes so that we could be a people that when we come together, we are the church that is for this community. And we are the church that is here to bless and serve the needs of those around us. So I wanna invite you to stand with me uh, and let's read our communion confession together. And at any time during this next song, I invite you to come taste and see that the Lord is good. And would you bring your sacrifice before him and let's reach this easy goal of $1,800 to bless 60 families in our community. Are you excited? Is that just me? Let's go. Come on. Praise God. Uh, so let's read this together. I can.